I want to invite you to open up with me to Revelation chapter 20. And we begin coming through Revelation chapter 20 last week. We're going to continue that this week. But even before we do that, I want to kind of remind you where we are in this big picture of Revelation. So back in chapter 1, Jordan just made reference to this in verse 3. It reads, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So first of all, the time is near. We're getting closer and closer every day to the end of these things. But blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it. There's a special blessing ascribed to those who read, hear, and keep the things of this prophecy. No other book in the Bible has that specific blessing attached to it. Revelation is the only book that says that you're blessed if you read me. It's the only one. Plenty of scriptures ascribe blessing to those who read the scripture in general. This is the only book that has a specific blessing attached to it. So that is the blessing that hopefully we're going to have this morning. And I know that God is faithful to make that real to us. Now, if you go down to verse 19 in chapter 1, Jesus is instructing John on what to write down. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that's that, that familiar phrase, metatauta after this or after these things. So Jesus is giving John a divine outline of the book of Revelation. And this is where we need to hone in on if we're going to understand the book as a whole. He says, write the things which you have seen. That is chapter one. That's the vision that John had of the glorified Christ. That's what he had seen. The things which are presently. And in John's day, it was present. And today, it's present. The church things. That's chapters two and three. They deal with the church. It's Jesus's letters to the church. Those are the things which are. And then the things which will take place after this. So after the church. What takes place after the church is taken off of the earth. The tribulation and all those things that, that fall in line there. That's chapters 4 through 22, through the end of the book. Those are all dealing with future events. So here in chapter 20, we are in these future events. And we've already come through the tribulation, uh, the seven years of hardship, and we're coming into the good stuff. Last week, we looked at the millennium. We looked at this kingdom age where Christ rules the earth from the throne of David. And you may have found that as you study the millennium and you start to learn more about it, that more questions actually come up. And I'm right there with you. You're not alone in that. And it's certainly hard for us to wrap our minds around something like this. Now, last week, you saw this sentence in verse 3. 
I'll read it to you. It said, but after these things, that is the millennium, he, Satan, must be released for a little while. And that that can take us off guard, and that's confusing. We're confronted with that reality in verse 3 there, but we get more details on it in the second half of the chapter, and we'll look at all of that this morning. So after being locked up in the abyss for a thousand years, Satan is allowed again to deceive the world. Not only that, but in this second half of the chapter, there's a very sobering episode of judgment at the end. And this is probably one of the most eye-opening passages in the Bible concerning our accountability to Almighty God. And quite frankly, this chapter brings us to many uncomfortable questions. And they're questions that many of us have, but maybe don't know what to do with them. You know, what happens when we die? Is there really an afterlife? Is there really a hell? And what is the nature of eternity? We are confronted with each one of these questions in this chapter. Now, since we just took the first half of the chapter last week, let's back up to verse 1 and just read through the whole chapter, and then we will start in verse 7 this morning. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And verse 7 is where we pick up this morning. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's a hard-hitting chapter. That's, that's hard stuff to deal with. And this is effectively the closing of human history as we know it. This is the wrapping up of the fallen creation. And it is quite literally the end of an era. Satan is released from the abyss for a short season. And the exact duration of time that he's released for is not specified. But we know that it's after the millennium. It probably won't take long for him to gather his forces for this last battle. And we'll see that. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So we are very directly confronted with this strange idea of Satan being released to deceive the world one more time. And naturally, this brings up some questions and likely even some emotions in us. You know, why would God release Satan once he's been bound up? It doesn't make sense. And that's a good question. And I do think there's a perfectly reasonable answer to that. But I also think there's even a more pressing question. Why did God let Satan loose the first time? It was well within his power to control and not let Satan do the things he's done. Why didn't he put an end to it before it even began. Now, I can't pretend to know God's reasoning perfectly, but I do know that God wanted a relationship with us. And not just a forced robotic relationship, but a relationship that's founded on the principle of love. True love doesn't exist in a forced relationship there has to be some choice involved. There has to be something or someone else to choose besides you or your husband or your wife's love wouldn't be love. We have to have another choice if our love to God was to be real. But even beyond allowing us to express our love for God, Satan actually had a hand in, ex- in allowing God to express his love for us. Now, let me explain. In Revelation 13, 8, it refers to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means that before God spoke creation into existence. He had purposed in his own heart to demonstrate his love towards humanity 
by sending his son to die for us. Before he even created his creation, he knew what had to be done. That was his plan from the beginning. The cross and sending his son was not a reaction to what Satan was doing. It was a plan that involved Satan. See, Satan played a big part in taking Jesus to the cross. He and his forces were against the Messiah. And they thought that they had won when they got him on the cross. The Son of God was hanging there. And I'm sure that Satan and his cronies were rejoicing. They're thinking, we did it. Until three days later, they realized, no, in fact, we did not do it. But we actually accomplished the plan that was in place from before time. So Satan is effectively a player in the redemptive story. God used Satan to bring about his purpose. And I think that God's reasoning for releasing him after the millennium is actually fairly simple. And it's not even far from why he released him to begin with. Throughout human history, man has had to make the choice to follow God. But during the millennium, Jesus will rule the earth with a rod of iron. And he won't allow evil to flourish. There will be less opportunity for man to express the evil that's already in his heart. They will all have knowledge of the Lord. And I want you to make note of this. Everyone will have knowledge of the Lord during the millennium. You remember last week we referenced Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But knowledge has never been enough to save. Knowledge has never been enough to save. And this is one of the most graphic examples of that in Scripture. Knowledge by itself is not enough. Satan is released into the world following the millennium so that every generation of men would be able to choose uninhibited either Christ or choose to reject him. So the whole gamut of human experience would be complete in every generation. It doesn't seem fair if people in the millennium didn't have that choice that all the rest of us do. So Satan is released at this time of the end for one last deceptive run. And he definitely makes a run of it. Now, people in the millennium will have knowledge of Jesus, the glory of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that everyone's saved. You see, salvation still comes from a faith in Jesus Christ, a repenting of sins. It's not enough. Even then, to know about Christ, you have to have a relationship with him. See, at this point, they will have to look in faith to the past, to what Christ has already done. And they're looking at 
Christ seated on his throne in glory, they still have to believe that that same guy was a suffering servant. He allowed himself to be pummeled, to hang on a cross, to be spat on. And they're looking up at him and they're like, what? This same Jesus suffered and died in my place? They can't believe their eyes. They still have to have faith in that completed work of Christ. Not everyone will have that faith. But the knowledge is there. You see the difference? This is one of the most revealing commentaries on the state of the human heart. Right here in Revelation 20. It serves to prove Jeremiah 17.9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, after these thousand years of peace and prosperity under the rule of Christ, everyone was provided for, creation was at peace with itself, and all seemed to be the best it had ever been. But right after that, this multitude of men, and it says, whose number is as the sand of the sea, immediately turn against their just ruler. Even when we have everything, our hearts turn back to evil. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now there's two big things that I want you to pay attention to just in verse 7. These thousand years must expire completely before Satan is released. He doesn't get out on parole. There's no jailbreak. He doesn't get out. His sentence has to be served. God is in control of this situation. The second thing I want you to pay attention to is that he's released. He doesn't break out. His demons don't come and break him out of the abyss. He is released. God is in control. Verse 8, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So even after a thousand years of this imprisonment, Satan is still up to his old shenanigans. Nothing has really changed. There's no change of heart on his part. He's still deceiving. He's doing what he's done for all the other thousands of years. And it says, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, I don't want you to let this reference to Gog and Magog confuse you. This is not the same event that's recorded in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And that's usually where we go when we think of Gog and Magog. But there are a few key differences between that event in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the event here in Revelation 20. In Ezekiel, the armies attacking Israel are from a few very specifically named countries. In Revelation here, the attacking armies are from all over the earth. 
In Ezekiel, they're destroyed by a great earthquake and a volcano. In Revelation, they're destroyed by fire from God out of heaven. In Ezekiel, that destruction is followed by a seven-month burial and a seven-year burning of weapons. In Revelation, that destruction is followed by the renovation of the earth and the last judgment. So these are different events in view. Also, don't get Gog and Magog confused with Armageddon. Those are also separate events. Practically, the only similarity that Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 20 share is the fact that armies are gathered together against Israel. And of course, we know that that's happened time and time again throughout history. And it's likely that by this time in history, the term Gog and Magog has become idiomatic for like a big battle or even a big battle against Israel. And that's probably the sense that it's used here. And this usage would be similar to us saying that someone has met their Waterloo. You know, we, we say Waterloo, and that's the battle where Napoleon Bonaparte was finally defeated. He met his Waterloo. And we use that term to describe other things that are not that actual battle. That could be the kind of usage that we're encountering here. And this event in Revelation may be similar to the first Gog and Magog in scope, but it doesn't seem to be referring to that exact same event. Okay, so don't let that throw you off. Two different timelines there, and it says it's to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So this is Jerusalem. So these armies are surrounding Jerusalem and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now that sounds like a very personal kind of a judgment. God is taking this personally. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan, who was locked up in the abyss, but has not yet been consigned to the lake of fire, um, Satan is now joining the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. After this last rebellion is squashed, God does cast Satan into the lake of fire. Remember, that's where he put the beast and the false prophet a little while ago. Actually, a thousand years ago. So notice that that duo has been there in the lake of fire for the last thousand years. They've not been burnt up or annihilated, but are being tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's tough for us to swallow. You'll run into this unbiblical teaching that supposes people are burnt up into nothingness or, quote, annihilated when they get to hell. And this view is called annihilationism. 
it makes people feel more comfortable, but it completely flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. In verse 10, it clearly says that the beast and the false prophet are still in this lake of fire after a thousand years of torment. Clearly, they are not annihilated when they reach this place. And the very next sentence tells us God's plan for them. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a conscious torment. You see, the rest of the human dead who have not accepted Christ will be consigned to this same lake of fire and will suffer the same consequences for their rejection of Christ. Proponents of this annihilationism will cite Matthew 10.28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we have to be careful with this word destroy because it can be misleading in the English translation. This word in the original Greek means more accurately to be delivered up to eternal misery. That is the better definition of this word. And that comes from Thayer's Greek lexicon. It's a very authoritative lexicon. And Strong's is more popular, Strong's lexicon, but Thayer's is actually a better source when you really want to get to the bottom of something. And this word doesn't mean to annihilate or to destroy like we would think of it. Rather, to be delivered up to eternal misery. And this verse cannot be used as a proof text of annihilationism. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. The earth and the heaven fled away from the face of the one who sits on this great white throne. This great white throne that John sees is where the name for this judgment comes from. We colloquially call it the great white throne judgment. And him who sat on it. Jesus says in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So we can safely infer that this one on the throne is Christ himself. So Jesus sits on this throne to judge the rest of unbelieving humanity. Of course, The white throne speaks to his holiness and his purity and no doubt his righteousness in regards to his judgment. In Revelation 16, 7, an angel calls God's judgments true and righteous. And indeed, they are. And it's so important to understand. If you get nothing else From this morning, I want you to take this away. As believers, we are not present at this great white throne judgment. This does not concern us. This 
is a judgment of unbelievers. Let's read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 again, and then we'll go through it. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In verse 12, he says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Since believers from all ages have already been resurrected, and that is in the first resurrection that we looked at last week, they would not be included here in the dead because they are dead no longer. They have been resurrected. Rather, this would refer to all unbelievers who could not take part in the first resurrection with believers. And in the interest of clarity, no unbeliever can take part in the first resurrection. This means that all unbelievers stand before God in judgment at this time, at the great white throne judgment. Believers will have already received their rewards at the Bema Seat Judgment. And there are at least a couple of books in view here. And people are judged based on the contents of those books. One is the Book of Life, and the other seems to be a book or books of works. Believers have already been judged at this point in time according to the book of life. And unbelievers are now being judged according to their works. Unbelievers are being judged according to their works. This is another way that we can tell that we're not included in here. We are not judged in a salvific kind of a way based on our works. If you accept Christ, you're judged according to his works. And let me tell you, that's a better bet. That's the judgment that we want to go with. I can assure you that you don't want to be judged according to your works. Isaiah 64, 6, well-known passage, says that all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The work that we do in our flesh, it's filthy rags to God. There's nothing that we can do in our own strength to gain his favor. And, you know, this really is something remarkable about the Christian faith. It's not a story of man trying to reach up to God uh, by religious rites, ceremonies, and sacrifices. Rather, 
It's a story of an almighty God reaching down to his creation in an epic display of his love for them. He became man and died among his fallen creation to bring those to him who want that relationship with him. And that is so backwards from every other religion in the world. Every other religion that you look at is man trying to reach out to an infinite God. There's no way that a finite being can reach an infinite being. But conversely, an infinite being has every ability to reach a finite being. Christianity is unique in this regard. And it makes sense that all of the other world religions would be the way that they are. The world's apostate religions all come from Satan, distracting from Jesus Christ. Satan won't reach out to man. He just won't do it. He wants man to reach to him. He wants their worship. And of course, that's why we see that pattern in all the other religions. Christianity is uniquely positioned among all these others. And you've probably heard the saying that all religions lead to God. And you know, in a way, that's true. Everybody's going to stand before God in judgment. But it's not true in the way that they're intending it. You see, it does matter which book you're being judged from. The only way that you can be judged from the book of life is if you're covered by the blood of Christ. It's the only way. Otherwise, you're judged by your works. And spoiler alert, they're not good enough. It only takes the blood of Christ. No religion can make you righteous before God. When he looks at you, he'll see one of two things. He will either see a sinner who is dead in their transgressions, a black heart, or he'll look at you and see his son, the righteousness of his son. You're either covered by the blood of Christ or you're not. There's no gray area, and there's only two options. And how he sees you determines where you spend eternity. John said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Regardless of your status on earth, rich or poor, powerful or not, whether you drive a Ford or a Dodge, yes, I, I did go there, wearing a three-piece suit or wearing rags, it doesn't matter your status in the world. Small and great, everyone stands before God. The sea gave up the dead who are in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who are in them. And they were judged, each one, take note, according to his works. 
Death and Hades is an interesting construct. In Greek, it's Thanatos and Hades. So death gives up the body and Hades gives up the soul. And these unbelievers are resurrected bodily in a body fit for their eternal punishment. It's different in many ways, I'm sure, from the body that we will receive, but they are resurrected bodily. That's the second resurrection. We saw the first resurrection last week. This is the second resurrection. This is the one that you don't want to be a part of. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So today, when an unbeliever dies, their soul goes to this place called in the New Testament, Hades, and in the Old Testament, Sheol. This is just a temporary abode for the dead before they are cast into the lake of fire. Now, neither of these terms, Hades or Sheol, refer to the eternal state. And they're not equivalent to what we think of as hell or this eternal place of punishment. Hades and Sheol are, again, both terms referring to the same place, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. That refers to this holding tank, if you will. Um, It's a temporary place. And we see here in Revelation 20 that death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And then eventually, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire themselves. So everyone that is waiting there is waiting eternal punishment. Now, this lake of fire, and we see it in verses 14 and 15, that's the place of eternal punishment where these unsaved dead will ultimately spend an eternity separated from God. This lake of fire is closer to what we usually mean when we use the word hell in English. But it is best to be more precise with our terms when we're really having a discussion about something like this. The lake of fire is also the same as Gehenna. You've probably heard of that word. It's mentioned in several passages in the New Testament. The word Gehenna is translated most of the time as hell in English. This is used, and I'm going to list several references where Gehenna is used. You'll note that usually fire is added to that, the word fire. So it's hell fire, Gehenna pier in the Greek. These are instances where this word Gehenna is used and translated hell. You have one in Matthew 5, 22, Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 18, 9, Matthew 23, 15, and verse 33. In Mark 9, 43, 9, 45, 9, 47, Luke 12, 5, and James 3, 6. The lake of fire and Gehenna both refer to the same place. They both refer to this lake of fire. And the word Gehenna historically referred to a actual physical place on earth. And it was this area just south of Jerusalem 
It was located in the valley of Hinnom, where garbage was constantly being burned. So there was this kind of eternal flame to the south of the city where they would burn their garbage. And it was, in effect, an eternal flame. And when it's used in the scripture, it, refer, it refers to the eternal flame of the lake of fire. And that's a place of eternal punishment. Now, unfortunately, people often have the wrong idea when it comes to hell or Gehenna. Many think that Satan rules in hell. That is so wrong. Satan does not rule hell. He goes there to be tormented just like everyone else does. Some think that it's going to be this big debaucherous party in hell, you know, free of all kind of judgment from believers or from God. We just do whatever we want. That is also very, very wrong. And we have so many songs written about hell. Highway to hell, all the good girls go to hell, and so many others. Like, it's a major theme in our culture, it seems. And it's all wrong. It all presents a very skewed picture of what it actually is. And it's no surprise that society wants us to believe that skewed version of hell because it doesn't make it seem all that bad. But the reality of the situation is right here in black and white, in the text. It's a place of torment, day and night, forever and ever. Not somewhere to get a good party. And people have this skewed idea that hell was created for bad people and heaven was created for good people. Again, that's wrong. Heaven was created for all people. It's God's will that all should be saved. That's what he wants. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will. God's will is for you to be saved, not to suffer eternally. God doesn't wish for anyone to spend eternity apart from him. In fact, Jesus says that the lake of fire was actually prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Matthew twenty-five forty-one. It wasn't even prepared for humans. But through our rejection of Christ's provision, we end up sending ourselves there. You know, how can a loving God send someone to hell? He doesn't. You send yourself there. God has gone out of his way and suffered greatly to make a way so you don't have to go there. It's an unfair question to, to say, why would a loving God send someone to hell? 
because he doesn't. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So at the end here, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, Gehenna. And this is the second death. There's only one way to avoid the second death. And that is to have your name written in the book of life. Now, this whole episode of the Great White Throne Judgment is one of the most overt examples of our accountability to God in the whole entire Bible. Humans have to stand before God and answer to him. If you get there and you say, well, you know, I drop some money in the offering plate almost every week and I helped people who were hurting, I gave to the poor. You know, I I think I'm a pretty good guy. I haven't done anything too bad. I haven't killed anybody. So that's plus one for me, right? It's not enough. It's not enough. When you stand before an almighty, holy God, you should be able to point to his son. He's taken care of it. I'm covered in the blood. I don't want to lean on my own works. I don't want to be judged based on what I do. Because trust me, it ain't pretty. I want to be judged based on what has already been done on my behalf. This is certain to be the destiny of every unbeliever. But God has so engineered history to make this the most avoidable event ever in human history. He has made the perfect way of salvation available to everyone who will accept it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have the choice whether you're judged by your works or his. And if that choice is not one that you've made yet, you default to being judged by your works. If you want to be judged based on his completed work, you must, you must repent of your sins. You can't hang on to anything. You have to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life. Think about that. The Lord and Savior, he has to sit on the throne of your life. And if he's not already, you're sitting on that throne. Savior, 
You have to believe that that he has already accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. Place your faith in him. You can choose whether you're judged by your works or his. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, I don't want you to leave here bummed out, okay? The next chapter, all things are made new. I'm going to read a little bit in chapter 21, and then we'll close in prayer. Chapter 21 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Guys, that's what we're headed towards. We don't have to be stuck here for the rest of eternity. We're moving on to something better. Even better than that description of the millennium last week. You know, a lot of things are made right during the millennium, but it's not eternity. And right there in the beginning of chapter 21, that's a glimpse into eternity with Christ. That excites me. You know, we have this anchor for our souls. That's the heavenly calling, the upward calling that we have as Christians. This is where we're rooted. Abraham looked for the city. No more death, no sorrow. Abraham was uprooted from his family and he was told to just leave. I'll tell you where you're going when you get there. And he spent his whole life looking for this city whose builder and maker was God. And he had faith. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's the same faith that we have to have today. Let's wrap up this morning in a word of prayer. Please bow your heads with me.